It is God's Word, even these parts. Here we have the second coming of Jesus, which we cheer, but we also have accompanying this two of the most difficult realities in all of Scripture, that being holy war and hell, which people boo, okay? So this is a, this is a really uh, interesting passage because of all the emotions that it conjures. I mean, for the faithful, this sense of, yes, come Lord Jesus. I mean, I don't want all the, the grisly stuff. I'm not wishing that on anybody. But for the uh, unbeliever, it's a sense of holy war and hell. I mean, come on. Uh, that's, that makes the, the Bible no book that they want to read. Jesus and the armies with him, the armies of heaven, initiate holy war as the last sands pass through this world's hourglass. And then down in verse 20, we have this reference to hell, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Happy daylight saving time day. All right, I picked a passage that you sleepyheads because you missed your precious hour. You can't sleep on this passage today. There's no easy way to say this. Uh, and besides hard biblical things, trying to say them easily or breezily offends biblical tension that we have to respect. But to reject the Savior on the cross is to get the Savior on the clouds. Only this time when he reappears, his second coming, the time for saving is past. When Jesus appears this way, the way we have him here in chapter 19. Jesus as judge, Jesus the warrior, the savior on the cross at his first coming, God making the way for people to be reconciled to him, which is his great project. He's reconciling the world to himself. The church has been entrusted with this message. And God has made this way through the cross. That happens at the first coming, but at the second coming, it's in the clouds on a horse with a sword. What is going on? What is this about? Now, if you're active in sharing your faith, and I don't presume that everyone is, but a number of us are active in sharing our faith, you already know that when people register problems they have with the Bible, problems they have with the Bible, it's passages like this one they point to passages with holy war in it. You go back to Deuteronomy and Joshua where God tells the people of Israel, go in and leave nothing breathing. And people find those passages. How can you believe in a God that would order up this slaughter of people groups around Israel? And, and they also have uh, references, uh, problems with references to hell, like you get in the Gospels and in the uh, letter from James and also here in Revelation. How can a good God be for this? People wonder. People in the church also wonder. And to shrug off this or to give a pat answer is not going to cut it. People are bringing us an open Bible at times and saying, help me make sense of this, this God of love and grace you talk about, making holy war and casting souls to hell. Now, the assumptions that oftentimes are driving the pushback we get are that holy war is the strong commandeering the weak, that uh, people are using God to, to take over, 
you know, to, to take the land that doesn't belong to them and impose war on those who would otherwise be peaceful. That's why people have a problem with holy war in Scripture because they, the two just don't seem to, to fit because their assumption is the strong is using God to commandeer the weak and otherwise peaceful and, and, and God just overruns them with, with his own people. And then, of course, the dominant assumption about hell is that it's a torture chamber. And so the complaint that people raise when you interact with them about the gospel in modern times and you interact with people who, who know that these realities are in Scripture, you know, they say, why, why, why are you asking me to believe in an ethnic cleanser? Why are you asking me to believe in a sadist? Okay. And a lot of uh, caricatures of, of God, misrepresentations, uh, will, will, will proceed from, from those polls. So those assumptions are out there. Now, they are misrepresentations, but still, looking at this passage Spencer read to us, Revelation 19, we have both of the Bible's troubling realities in one text. Holy war and hell. And the problem that people have, well, we've been talking about the problem they have, but in addition, more problems they have is they conjure up the worst fears in, in people that if there is a God, he's actually eager to destroy them. That's the, the sense that people also get from this. It's as if God says, believe in me or else. <laughs> Love me or else. How many uh, uh, of you ladies got engaged by way of your husband dropping to one knee and saying, marry me or I'll make my, your life a living hell, you know? I don't know that that's anybody's engagement story. There are restraining orders for guys like that. Jesus returns as a conqueror. And you know, conquerors aren't cool right now. I get that from none other than Jeff Bezos, who used to be this kind of computer geeky guy, and then he shaved his head and got jacked. And he's got all this money. And two years ago, Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, put together 24 rules of corporate coolness. And number 11 on his list is conquerors are not cool. Explorers are cool. They're at number 10. And surprisingly, even missionaries are cool. Number 22 on his list. Though I think by missionary, Bezos has in mind a visionary like himself preaching the commercial gospel of large market share and being all things to all people in the Amazon way. But conquerors, Jesus comes back here as a conqueror and Bezos says, conquerors are not cool. Not corporately, not commercially, not politically, not nowhere, not any version. And so Especially now, the, the, the cultural climate that we're in, people feel this revulsion for anyone taking over, including God. This is automatically suspicioned. Takeovers are always hostile. It's automatically suspicioned that, that it's, uh, there's hostility in it. Now, I did a whole series back in 2015 on holy war and hell. It was entitled Defensible. The Bible has enough to say about both topics and how God works at his justice. So five years ago from this pulpit, we, we talked about this in a series of sermons. And, and in that series, I tried to show why and how holy war 
is not the strong using God to commandeer the weak and the peaceful. That in fact, Babylon, remember we talked about Babylon the last, uh, last Sunday, the, the last three chapters, uh, or, or chapter 16, 17, 18 that we talked about last Sunday. Babylon is the label given to empire, given to power structures uh, and, and the way powerful cultures work. And Babylon is not neutral. Babylon is neither neutral nor weak nor peaceful. Babylon is, remember what I said over and over again last week, it's an economic brothel that the wealthy and powerful frequent and protect through injustices of all kinds, but also the poor and the powerless chip in their part. They want to be part of Babylon too. And hell, the lake of fire, as verse 20 describes, and we'll get that description also in chapter 20 and in chapter 21, Hell is uh, not a, a torture chamber down in the, in the molten core of the earth. So the assumption of holy war is that God is imposing uh, something on people that, that, that will otherwise be, you know, leave them alone. They'll be peaceful. And No, it's Babylon. Babylon is not neutral. Babylon is not weak. Babylon is not peaceful. Babylon, verse 19, is making war against the one who sits on the, the horse. And when they finally see him, rather than say, no, no way, we're not going to, they're going to keep challenging him. Babylon cannot be changed. And so you get the assumption about that on holy war. Then the assumption about hell is that hell is this torture chamber down, down, down into the molten core of the earth with little devils, you know, with their pitchforks and the, and the fiery stalactites and stalagmites and, oh, nowhere I want to be. Now, hell is a place of torment, but the picture I just gave you is, is, is the medieval imagination. Uh, a place of torment is not the same as a place of torture. And people have this idea of hell as a place of torture. That's, God is the cosmic sadist. He's going he's gonna to torture people forever. I'm not giving you a kinder, gentler version of hell and correcting the, 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 the caricature of it that, that even flourishes uh, among evangelicals. But hell is presented to us, and, and Jesus talks about it this way in the Gospels, and we're going to see it in the next couple of chapters in Revelation. Hell is presented to us not as this cavernous you know, place down in the belly of the earth. It is presented to us as outside the city. In other words, as New Jerusalem descends, hell is a thing that is cast out. And the imagery used of it in Scripture is fire and darkness. And so it is where God is not. And so as God renews creation, as he brings his new heavens and new earth, hell is this place that is outside the city. Jesus called it Gehenna, which meant Valley of Hinnom, which is right outside of Jerusalem, the valley in which Israel participated in child sacrifice. The worst stuff that ever happened in Israel's history happened out in that valley. And so every day in Jerusalem, Jesus would look to the Valley of Hinnom, and it was like, it was like if you've been cheated on, having to go past the cheap hotel that your spouse uh, went uh, with, uh, to, with their lover to. That's the valley of Hinnom to God. And that's hell, Gehenna, the valley. It's outside the city of Jerusalem. Hell, the lake of fire, is outside of the new Jerusalem when it comes. In fact, you don't get any contrast in, in Scripture between heaven and hell. You never find that contrast in Scripture. You find the contrast between hell and earth. It's interesting. 
Now we'll see this again in chapters 20 and 21, next couple of Sundays, that, that hell is a place to come. But it is presently a power. And it's at work in the world, and it's a power that God excludes from New Jerusalem to protect that place, the abode of God, the city of God with his people, to protect that place from evil. The biblical imagery about hell is tough. Just like most judgment imagery is tough because it's warning us, even as it's informing us, about the nature of, of whatever opposes God. Now, drawing this distinction between torture and torment, just while we're talking about this, thinking about this, we have to say this. Uh, we can't just run past it or assume that we're all on the same page with it. If I draw a distinction between torture and torment, that'll sound to a lot of people like splitting hairs. And, and again, the reality of hell is terrible. But it's not torture. Now, torment and torture both involve personal suffering. But a headache will torment you. Me putting electrodes on your temples and giving you shocks is torturing you. The difference being that torture is um, making something worse, some misery worse in a sadistic way because the sadist does direct, uh, does direct pleasure to themselves through making other people suffer. That's torture. The misery of hell, the reason it is torment, is that it is separation from God in a place where he does not exist. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful imagination, the book is called The Great Divorce. If you read it, he pictures hell as a sprawling, uh, uh, what's it called when a city sprawl? sprawl? It's called sprawl. Yeah, I've had the word right there. Uh, and, and that the sprawl is because nobody can get along with each other. And so they just keep pushing further and further out. Everybody wants to be left alone there. There are no card games with your friends. There are no shots with buddies and thinking about what it was like back on earth. It is a place of darkness, a place of fire. The symbolism in that is that it's a place of torment. And the torment, the reality of that is that I am separated from God for all eternity, but this is the way I wanted it. If I didn't want to be with God in life, why would I be, want to be with him in death? And hell is prepared for the devil and those who followed him out of the rebellion of heaven. It wasn't, it wasn't prepared for people, though people will be there. So I recognize people today have a real gag reflex to passages like this one in chapter 19. And I recognize the pressure on some of our young people to disbelieve this because it is decidedly not cool to believe in a God who judges. Now, that's not the only reason that young people may struggle with their faith today, but it's a major one. And even if you find in the unbelievers that you interact with, they kind of laugh hell off as, you know, I, I, I mean, if you're, if you're thinking I'm going to be scared by that, I, I don't think it's real, so there's nothing for me to be scared of. So, so, you know, it's not unsettling to them maybe as a reality, but it is unsettling to, the, to them that you believe in it. They're still unsettled that we think this, and they will ask us, how can you think this? I think Russell Moore took a good angle on this in his book, uh, Onward. He talks about uh, having some interaction with uh, a lady who 
If you take all of the secular boxes of, of identity markers of what makes a secular person, she checked all the boxes. And he was interacting with her at this particular place. Um, she had, um, he had met her and he says it was a major urban cultural center. Uh, if you don't know Russell Moore, he's the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said that he articulated the viewpoint um, uh, about what she believed. She wanted to know, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. He said, um, she wanted me to talk to her because evangelical Christianity piqued her interest as a sociological phenomenon. In other words, she thought we were really weird and she wanted to understand us. And so she got this Christian who was articulate and, and had spoken at this place she had been to and she wanted to know more. And so she pulled him aside and she was most interested in our sexual ethic and peppered me with questions about why we thought certain things were sinful. We had a respectful civil conversation, though she couldn't help but laugh out loud several times when our articulated viewpoints quite commonplace, not only in historic Christianity, but in Judaism and for that matter, Islam. She said I was the first person she'd ever actually talked to who believed that sexual expression ought to take place within marriage and that I was the only person she'd ever met in real life who thought that marriage could only happen with the union of a man to a woman. She said that if she ever met anyone who had seen someone for more than three or four weeks without having sex, she would not first assume that this person had some sort of religious conviction, rather this person must bear the psychological star scars of some traumatic abuse. She followed this up by saying, so do you, he's quoting her, so do you see how strange what you're saying sounds to us, those of us out here in normal America? Before I could answer, I was, I was distracted by those two words, normal America. How things had turned around. Most of the people in the pews of my church back home, he's talking about his upbringing down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, would consider themselves to be normal America. They would view this woman with her sexual libertarianness and her dismissal of monogamy as some freakish cultural elite out of touch with traditional values. But I suspect she's right. More and more, she represents the moral majority in this country, committed to family values of personal autonomy and sexual freedom. She is normal now. She snapped me out of my daydreaming by asking again, seriously, do you know how strange this sounds to me? I smiled and said, yes, I do. It sounds strange to me too, but what you should know is we believe even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. If what we believe seems strange to normal America now, normal America is not churched America, let's make it even stranger. In other words, let's lean in. Uh, not to be weird, uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of being weird for its own sake. Um, too many Christians through our history have thought that weirdness is some sort of commendation to God. It's not, it just makes you weird. Uh, don't go there. You don't need to be a weirdo for Jesus. He doesn't need any more weirdos. Um, but we need to give people the whole storyline. When people raise the hard questions, uh, we need to go there with them. And we need to respect the tensions that that creates, not giving them easy, breezy answers. 
Uh, we need to give them the whole storyline start to finish, including Revelation 19. I think Russell Moore had the right instinct. And notice that he also used humor. Don't underestimate. A winsome testimony may not get you very far. It's not like winsomeness opens every door, but don't underestimate just the role of being friendly, being able to laugh at yourself as a, as a, a way that, that can, can get past the, the, the dragons of heart defensiveness. You see, strange doesn't mean unintelligible. I mean, even more, we have to be able to articulate now why we believe what we believe, not just what we believe. And it's got to make sense. Somebody may reject the conclusions, but they've got to see the logic. They've got to see how it fits together. And, and, and we've got to be able to articulate why we believe what we believe and why we practice our faith and understand, too, as time goes on, the practices of faith are, are their own validators. So if you've taken this tack, and you probably haven't because you're here this morning, but if, if you know Christians that take the tack, well, it's just me and Jesus, and, and I'm just going to uh, kind of leave the church at bay, what we're finding as we talk to people is that spiritual disciplines and church commitment, uh, taking the tack that the Lord has taken himself, that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, that, that when we commit ourselves, we immerse ourselves in a community and yet are still available to those outside of it and friendly with them, that's even more important now in validating the importance of faith in Christ. I mean, you've got to think about this if you care about witness. And I don't assume that everybody does, but if you care about witness and you're kind of like the 1.7 Sundays out of the month, you'll, you'll be at church when it's convenient, when the kid isn't on a travel team, etc. and all. I mean, you've got to think about what that looks like to an unbeliever. You're telling me this is the most important thing in your life, a relationship with Christ, and you don't really commit to his people? Somebody's going to point that out at some point and say, help me understand that. I'm not guilting you, okay? No shame. This is the no shame zone. Right here, the whole church. You with me? Everybody nod at me. Make me feel better. I'm not shaming you. Yes, I understand, Cole. You're not shaming. But you are pointing out something. There is a certain logic to biblical judgment. People may reject the logic because they don't want to deal with the realities it points to. And, and we need to be patient with them. So patient. You need to be patient. With, you know what I find harder? The hardest people I find to be patient with are deconverting evangelicals. Because I find them dishonest. They don't, they, they never come to me for some reason and say, hey, I've got some issues. Why is that? Am I mean? Do I come across? Is it the suit? Is it the receding hairline? Is it that my jokes are bad? The comedian's coming Wednesday. His jokes are good. What is it? You'll get, the, I'll hear about the deconverting evangelical, you know, from our church. And I, and I go, why, why have I never had an opportunity to sit down personally and say, I'm, I am willing to listen. We'll meet three times and I won't say a word. I'll just listen. You tell me everything that you've got that's a problem with. And I only ask that you would give me 10 minutes at, the, at, at some point to say, here's how I would address your problems. Now, you may not be convinced. You may not be compelled. But at least... I mean, if you watch a, a, if you listen to a 48-minute podcast and you're willing to punt 18 years 
of investment of a church. I mean, give me, give me a break. Come on. It's too easy for people to give up their faith now. And yeah, they hang it on while the church is hypocritical, and they're hypocritical about a lot of stuff. I remember a guy in my fraternity who said, uh, you know what, I'm not a Christian anymore because I couldn't stand the hypocrisy. And our fraternity had a thing called the Jordan Standard. I'm a Sigma Chi. And the Jordan Standard, named after one of our founders, it, 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 it is the picture of a non-Friday night, Saturday night fraternity young man. Okay, Meaning the Jordan Standard is about high character, high morals, high integrity. And I said to this guy, <laughs> uh, how come you're still in Sigma Chi? And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, the Jordan standard. How many of our brothers live up to the Jordan standard? Nobody. It's aspirational. Oh, ding, 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 ding. Aspirational. So, so you're willing to give a pass to hypocritical Sigma Chi's who don't live up to the standard that we're supposed to live up to, but you won't give any pass to people, some of whom are just dealing with their own brokenness and they're not trying to be hypocritical. They may come across that way to you. Some are, but a lot aren't. You're just being judgmental of them. He got the point. We had a conversation because that wall was removed and suddenly it was just him before God. It wasn't him before the grilling Christian. It was him before God. Brother, you're going to have to deal with the Lord, not with me, not with podunk Baptist church you came from, you have to deal with the Lord. There's a certain logic to biblical judgment, but the logic is this. Here's the logic to biblical judgment. People may reject where you're going with it, but here's the logic. God is reconciling the world to himself because the world belongs to him. God is reconciling the world to himself only through Christ because the world belongs to God and everything in this world that therefore opposes his rightful ownership of it, he will remove. That's the logic. If it belongs to him, he has the right to do that. And we actually want him to do that in the end. Because that's his mercy in action to finally and definitively conquer evil and drive it out of here totally. Everybody wants evil to be gone. Maybe except for the people who profit from it. But even then, they recognize that their own house is not safe. That their, their own vulnerabilities to evil. Everybody wants evil to go. So he doesn't come this way in chapter 19 as it portrays because he's eager to destroy. In fact, you know, look at these descriptors that you, you get uh, in verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. You've already seen that. Back in chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1, verse um, 14, the hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. You get the description in the beginning of Revelation of Jesus the warrior. And by the way, it's fascinating. If for no other reason, I think there are other reasons, but if for no other reason, twice in Revelation, Jesus is described with this powerfully frightening imagery of the warrior. Do you know what often Muslims see in their vision of Jesus? The man in Revelation 1. And they're told in the dream, go seek out a Christian and they will tell you who this is. 
Doesn't it make sense to a religion in which warfare is, is so central that Jesus would reveal himself to them as the warrior? Ah, but the warrior who loves. The warrior who loves. Very first part of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and you're going to get this description of him coming later in chapter 1 and on in chapter 19 of the fiery eyes and the woolly white hair and all that. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, verse 5, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus appears to Muslims in dreams as this warrior from Revelation 1, and they are undone. <laughs> and then they seek out a Christian who says, well, the, the warrior sent you that vision because he loves you. And they tell them the rest of the story. And it's a beautiful story of a God who only has to judge us, who only has to show us the warrior. But he shows us his love. What's the central gospel verse that we all have learned? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his... felt like Bernie Sanders making that move. Whoa, you know, like that. He so loved... You ever notice his hand motions? Whoa, you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting. What is perish? It's a word of judgment. God brings the two together and in, in it's a tension. We have to respect it in only the way that God can keep both together. That famous reference to perish in John 3.16, it's because of Jesus' love for all he made that he will finally drive from what is his that he made and made it in innocence. He will finally drive from it whatever has set against him in this world, everything that has vandalized his shalom, how we talk about sin, that is, uh, shalom is his design for human flourishing. He will, it cannot keep trespassing here indefinitely. Sin hasn't made the world better. It's made the world groan and ache and hurt. And the world needs not just a redeemer to make us right, but also a judge to put everything right at an end point, everything that's wrong for now. And we know it's wrong. All creation cries out for justice to be served. Now, with this in mind, let's get two brief takeaways. I can do this briefly. Where we are in Revelation 19 here, two brief takeaways and then we're done. The first one is the reason for judgment. You get it in this passage. It's in verse 19. They're fighting to the bitter end. The opposition to God is there. It's been there all along and it continues to be. That's why judgment comes. And then the second reason or the second takeaway is the mercy of the judge. So two takeaways, the reason for judgment and the mercy of the judge. First, the reason for judgment. As I've said, as we move through selected sections of Revelation, since January we've been in this, we're finishing it this month. A lot of the imagery in this book has Old Testament precedents. I've pointed that out a number of times. Verse 15, you've got three Old Testament references just there. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's Isaiah 11, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, which I've quoted many times in Revelation. Verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's Isaiah 63. Now, all these Old Testament references that John 
plays upon here. What does this tell us? It tells us that the reason for judgment is not because God finally gets sick of the world and blows a gasket in rage. <laughs> That's it. You know. Uh, it's hard how it's depicted here. I mean, you know, 17 and 18, 21, the birds and their supper. And, you know, I don't, that's, that's not, that's not, I don't like that. But don't miss what he's responding to. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. These are Babylon's clients with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And so that's been going on through time. Go back to Exodus. Remember uh, Egypt, uh, Egypt as the great Babylonian power of its day? The spirit and ethos of Babylon? Moses and the people, I'm going to give you Exodus 15 here. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord after the Red Sea had opened and had swallowed the army of Pharaoh. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is Exodus 15. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He's a warrior. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast in the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. What I just read you in Exodus 15, it's, it's like the battle hymn of the saints through time. God has been open about his intentions for centuries. And he even foreshadowed it way back in, in the exodus of his people to their promised land. You know the battle hymn of the republic. It dates back to the civil war. It was actually a union anthem. And it quotes the end of verse 15 here, Revelation 19, 15. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. His trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. I mean, SEC football fans at least recognize the tune of that from the Georgia game. Uh, the Georgia band plays it, and I quote here from their director, because I looked this up, after anything big happens, which explains why I leave Vanderbilt Stadium every other year with my head going, my eyes have seen the glory because a lot of big things happen when they play Vandy. What God did to Egypt was big, and it foreshadows, way back there in Exodus, you get this foreshadowing of what comes at the end yet to come, and Jesus is the one doing it. Verse 11, 1911, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he's also called in verse 13, uh, the word of God. And he's called in verse 16, king of kings and lord of lords. All these superlatives. And, and king of kings and lord of lords, it's not interchangeable. It's not redundant. King is an imperial title and, and lord is a divine one. He covers all the bases. The significance of the thigh, it says that's written on his thigh. For any other rider, the, the, the thigh is where the sword is. But the, the sword here comes from Jesus' mouth, which means he conquers by his word. He's been conquering by his word for centuries. And at the end, he conquers by his, his word. But back in the Old Testament, the thigh is associated with birth and fathering. And so here is Jesus leading many sons that he's taken to glory, leading sons and daughters 
born to him through the gospel witness of the church. It's imagery. It's Psalm 2 in HD. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord, against the anointed one? Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in your ways. You know, I think we tend to separate Jesus' death and resurrection from Jesus' judgment. Instead of seeing this all as a part of the ongoing unfolding of the purposes of God, what I mean by that is that we know Jesus' death was his taking God's judgment on our behalf. But still we think of Revelation 19 as something different in kind. You know, some people look at this like, Jesus is coming back, boy, is he ticked, you know. But in fact, redemption runs through judgment. Resurrection is on the other side of redeeming judgment. And we'll see this in the last three chapters of the book, that Jesus' death and resurrection has all along been a signpost of what is to come for creation. The old order is going to be put to death when he comes, as verse 15 and following describe. But just as Jesus' body was raised from the grave, so too creation. We'll see this next week and the following. Creation gets renewed after ongoing, undergoing judgment. God will baptize the world with fire, something destructive, but raise up from that judgment a new earth and bring his abode, the new Jerusalem, down to it. The reason for judgment is in service to redemption and putting everything that's wrong now right then. So Jesus rides out as a second coming as a conqueror, and a lot of people don't think that's cool. And a lot of us in the church would want God to grade on a curve. And, and please, just take my friends and, and family members, you know, a, a, as they are. They don't believe the gospel. They don't want the gospel. Just overlook their unbelief and bring them in to New Jerusalem. But, you know, you actually don't want God doing that. You don't want God ignoring our evil, letting us keep it, because evil doesn't keep its place. It's shown that. It's proven that. It, it doesn't change. It has to be removed from us as an, as an option. For God to ignore sin is not merciful. And this takes us to the second takeaway. A minute on this and we're done. The mercy of the judge. Notice in verse 13 his robe. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? It's only one of two answers. It's either the blood of Jesus or it's the blood of the the martyrs that we've met going through this the blood of the saints who've paid with their life I think it's the latter I'm not going to argue that but remember back in chapter 6 verses um, where was it in 6 verse 11 and 12 they were given each a white robe these are the the uh, the the martyrs under the altar and they're crying out for for God to avenge them in verse 11 of chapter 6, they're each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, which would be killed as they themselves have been. In chapter 7, verse 14, gives you a reference to, to, to the robes washed coming out of the great tribulation. I don't think that the blood here in 1913 is Jesus' own blood. And the reason I don't think that is because his blood was already poured out to secure our redemption. The bloodletting all through Revelation is the blood of the saints. Remember Babylon last week, portrayed as a, a prostitute drunk on the wine, uh, the, 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 her wine is the blood of the saints, who ask, who plead with God, vindicate us. And here the vindication comes. It comes on a horse in the clouds, the blood of martyrs on his robe signaling, 
something beautiful actually, not just his identification with his church, his people, but his intimacy with us. Which comes to us by way of his mercy because in our sin we join the opposing army. We want what God says don't take, we want our own autonomy, we want the right to our own way and we'd fight God to the death if not for his mercy. This passage doesn't just show us judgment, it shows us mercy. Even in the way Jesus arrays himself to ride out, to consummate our ultimate rescue. Would you pray with me? Let's stand together. Ken, let's sing a chorus. Let's just sing a chorus of something since we've got some time. Or the song that you, not of something, the song you mentioned to me, which crown him with many crowns. Is that what you had in mind? Lord, thank you for uh, your mercies to us. Judgment is sobering. Uh, The cross is sobering when we think about what happened there. And Lord, I pray that everyone under this teaching will meet you there so that the meeting on the cloud with the horse uh, doesn't apply to us in the sense of final judgment for sins that have not come under your blood, permitting you, running to you to get from you what only you can give to us, which is life before God. Thank you, Lord, that you're reconciling the world to yourself and that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul told the Corinthians, so that we can point people to a Savior who is patient, who is kind. And we thank you that behind those burning eyes in Revelation 1 and 19 is a a heart and mind that is uh, for the sinner and that wants healing. We thank you for that, that you have procured our healing. You've given us your grace. Lord, thank you for this truth. It is difficult. It is hard, but it is uh, given to us. The Bible doesn't hide it, and I thank you for that. There's nothing hidden in Christianity. It's all public. It's all out there. Help us to be able to explain and articulate for our friends, but also in the way we live and what we do to validate what we say is most important to us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. We pray in Christ's name.